the 16-year reign of King Edgar the Peacemaker, between 959 and 975, is often said to have been, as his name suggests, a relatively peaceful period in England. Sandwiched as it was between two brutal epochs of Viking invasion and dynastic turmoil. For the most part, this is a relatively accurate assessment. The West Saxon political elite busying themselves during those years in personally administrating the recently acquired areas of the five boroughs and the Danelaw. The king, meanwhile, is said to have patrolled his waters at the head of a battle-ready fleet of Anglo-Danish longships many of them manned by the descendants of the very same warriors who had overwhelmed Britain a century earlier, at the time of the Great Heathen Army. Upon their annexation by Wessex in the 910s and 920s, these Anglo-Danish thanes and warrior lords found themselves integrated into a newly forged political system, that of the ascendant Anglo-Saxon state, with its power base very much centred in the southwestern heartlands of Wessex. In the north, however, the situation was different. Though the now mostly Danish-ruled territories of East Anglia and the Five Boroughs had been annexed by the West Saxon warrior elite some 50 years earlier, the Old Kingdom of Northumbria, traditionally encompassing the majority of the lands between the River Humber in the south to the coast of Lothian in the far north, had only fully been incorporated into England a handful of years before Edgar's reign by his uncle, Eardred, in 954. Prior to this time, it being comprised of two independent realms. The southernmost of these territories, centred around the metropolis of Jorvik, by far the largest settlement in the north of Britain at this time, was an Anglo-Scandinavian realm, ruled over by an amalgamation of the old Dairon political elite and an influx of incoming Scandinavians, who had conquered the kingdom in the 9th century. Eric Bloodaxe, the last independent king of Northumbria, himself probably a son of the Norwegian king Harald Fairhair, had only been ousted in 954, just five years before Edgar's accession to the English throne. In the wake of Bloodaxe's death, however, still remained an elite class of Anglo-Scandinavian magnates and power brokers who dominated affairs in the north. In recent years, seeing their numbers bolstered by an influx of Norse scales from the Kingdom of Dublin, which for a time had vied for power with Wessex in a struggle to become the dominant force in Britain. As such, by the time of Edgar's reign, southern Northumbria was still heavily Scandinavian in culture, with its ruling elite predominantly speaking Old Norse as their first tongue, though having for the most part at least nominally adopted Christianity.
The other previously independent state, situated just further to the north, and now enjoying a slight revival in fortunes, was the last vestige of the Anglian kingdom of Bernicia, cut off from the rest of the Anglo-Saxon world for close to a century after the invasion of the Great Heathen Army in the 860s. From their unassailable seat of power at Bamborough, on the windswept eastern coastline, these northern rulers, probable descendants of a line of kings dating back four centuries to the mysterious epoch following the Roman withdrawal from Britain, had long played off not only Danish aggression from the south, but also inroads from Scotland and Strathclyde to the north, powerful dynasties having arisen in each over the previous decades. Bamborough finally submitted to King Athelstan of the Anglo-Saxons in the 920s, and became a part of the newly forged nation of England, though in the 940s and 950s, as the dragon boats of the Uyamere sailed across the sea from Dublin, Bernicia, just like Jorvik, probably ceded away from England for a time, only definitively coming back under the sway of Wessex in 954, upon the death of Eric Bloodaxe. Finally, there was the wild and rugged western coast, Cumbria, today still a largely sparsely populated land of imposing valleys and steep cliffsides. During the 10th century, it was inhabited by an amalgamation of Brythonic-speaking hill people and incoming Scandinavian settlers from the Irish Sea. Cumbria was one of the very last vestiges of the Hen Ogleth, the Old North, Romano-Brythonic kingdoms that had inhabited the entirety of the north before the coming of the Angles in the 6th century. In recent years, since the subjugation of the old Anglo-Saxon kingdom of Northumbria, these Britons had finally had their revenge on the Angles of Bernicia by reasserting their own independence, though increasingly of late, they seem to have come under the sway of the last centralised kingdom of the old north, Strathclyde itself a successor state to the ancient realm of Alt Clut, now a major power player in politics. In short, the north of the 950s and 960s was a brutal, unforgiving place, a melting pot of Angle, Dane and Britain. It was Edgar's job to play off these vying powers against one another in order to further his own fairly shaky claims to Northumbria. In order to do so, he needed allies, loyal lords who would rule in his name in his far northerly province, which was many weeks travel away from his usual haunts at the best of times, over hundreds of miles of rugged, unforgiving terrain. During this uncertain era, the Angles of Bernicia were obvious allies, sharing a similar, if not identical, culture to the Saxons of the south. The other allies, perhaps surprisingly, were the Anglo-Scandinavian inhabitants of Jorvik, fast becoming one of the epicentres of trade in northern Europe, with coins and goods flooding in from as far afield as northern Africa, Central Asia and the Middle East. These power brokers, most of whom seem to have been primarily traders rather than Viking raiders, likely saw in Wessex the potential allure of stability, wealth 
and a future. In the first few years after Eric Bloodaxe's death, it is difficult to ascertain just who exactly was ruling Jorvik for the West Saxons. Potentially, the Lord of Bernicia, Oswulf, may have taken the job, though soon enough it probably became clear to Wessex that leaving the entirety of the far-flung north in the hands of a single dynasty was too much of a risk to take. Instead, Northumbria would be split up into two once more, as it had been for much of its history. Upon Oswulf's death in the mid-960s, the man who Edgar chose for the job of administering Jorvik was a Scandinavian named Oslak. He is generally referred to as the first elderman of York and its dependent territories, being attested at the court of King Edgar on numerous occasions, usually as a witness to charters, thus indicating his prominent position at the West Saxon court. It's generally thought that Oslak took over the position of elderman in York in 966, holding the position until his eventual downfall close to a decade later in 975. Yet, despite the newfound understanding with the South, the Scandinavians of Jorvik, for the most part, seeming to have settled down to a peaceful life, the North wasn't bereft of the threat of Viking attack from the sea, and the West Saxon political elite knew it. Edgar's uncle, King Eadred, himself a grandson of Alfred the Great, had left a vast sum of money in his will upon his death in 955, in order to protect his kingdom from impending Viking attacks should they occur. Perhaps knowing some first-hand information about political events in Scandinavia that we lack today. For the time being, the rise of a powerful centralised monarchy in Denmark had led to a number of unification wars in the mid-10th century that may have curtailed outward Viking incursions in the short term. Though, of course, the most astute in Britain knew that it was only a matter of time before the Scandinavians sorted out their own internal squabbles and ventured to foreign shores once more. Denmark wasn't the only breeding ground for Vikings, not by any stretch of the imagination. In the 960s, just across the sea in Norway, it was that very same lengthy dynastic conflict with Denmark that had led to a number of sea rovers leaving their original homelands to seek out territories abroad. One of those men was Thorgils Skarthi. Thorgils was old school, almost certainly still a pagan, and a ferocious warlord to boot. At his side, stood a battle-hardened retinue of warriors, eager to carve out new lands and opportunities for themselves. The soft territories of their cousins over in Northumbria would do nicely. In around 966, he and his men arrived off the Northumbrian coastline aboard a sizeable fleet of ships. They ravaged their way along the shore, taking slaves and plunder back to their longboats and seizing a number of settlements. 
At the same time, Thorgil's brother, Cormac Flynn, roughly translated as the Arrow, is said to have landed his own band of marauders a little to the south along the Northumbrian coastline. There, at Flamborough Head, which still roughly translates as Flynn's stronghold today, he seized a clifftop settlement and made it his base of operations. Cormac was apparently so troublesome for the local Anglo-Danish population that the ancient prehistoric earthwork, which cuts off the neck of the Flamborough Peninsula from the rest of the mainland today, acquired the name Danes Dyke, by which it is still known today. Due to the fragmentary and often missing sources of this time period, it isn't exactly clear what happened next. But after a while, these two marauding bands may have come to some kind of an agreement with Oslak and the power elite in Jorvik. Before long, in Thorgil's case, beaching their ships and settling down to a new life in England, perhaps in return for military service. Founding the town of Skararaborg along the coast, Scarthy's Fortress, known today as Scarborough. Even closer to home, Norse Gaels had long operated as pirate kings in the Irish Sea, from their bases of power on the Scottish Isles, the Isle of Man and Ireland. These descendants of Vikings tended to spend their time raiding and plundering any settlements brave enough to keep their homes close to the shore. And whilst by the 960s, most of these pirate lords had been deterred from Northumbria by the newfound English supremacy, rogue bands could always still pop up to destroy a remote town, enslave its population, and be gone before anyone could do anything about it. One such attack came in 966, when a rogue fleet appeared off the wild coasts of Westmoreland in Cumbria. The first time that this name appears in the historical record Whilst they were there, the newcomers devastated the shore, ravaging the local population and likely taking slaves and plunder back to some unknown location. Although perhaps indistinguishable at first glance from the two brothers, Scarthy and Cormac, the leader of this attack had in fact lived in Britain for his entire life. His name was Thored and he just so happened to hail from a distinguished family of Jorvik nobility. Probably being a son of Gunnar, a wealthy lord of Jorvik, hailing from one of the other powerful families of the north alongside Oslak. The fact that this rebellious son of a northern magnate is recorded as having attacked what was then likely Northumbrian territory has led a number of historians, such as Richard Fletcher, to suggest a feud between Oslak's family and Gunnar's. Fletcher suggests that the attack on Westmoreland by Thored may have actually been carried out out of anger at either he or his father being snubbed for the eldermanry of Jorvik in favour of Oslak's clan.
Though Thored was punished in the short term by the king for his piratical activities, of which we know little more than a scrap of information, losing various lands and properties as a result, in time he would rise to political importance again, eventually, very probably, becoming the most important lord of the north. Though mere fragments remain of Thored's rise to power, by 975, the winds of change had begun to blow through the north. Edgar died that year, and in the wake of his death, the fragile political unity that the House of Wessex had just about kept in check teetered on the verge of oblivion. Having essentially seized the throne in a power grab in 924 after the death of his estranged father, Edward, not fully solidifying his rule until 925, King Athelstan, though usually remembered as one of the greatest kings in English history, never married, nor is he recorded as having had any children. Instead, he passed power over to his half-brother Edmund upon his death, thus avoiding any potential succession crisis like those that had plagued the Carolingian Franks across the Channel. Upon Edmund's death in 946, the throne in turn passed to his younger brother, Eadred, another scion of Wessex who had been raised at Athelstan's court, and the king who carried on the legacy of his older brother by finally and definitively annexing the north. Upon Eadred's death in 955, however, Athelstan's careful strategy for avoiding potential civil war became a thing of the past, as factionalism again began to rear its ugly head in England, as two half-brothers and two political camps began to vie with each other for power. The country being effectively split into two for a number of years, with further conflict likely only being avoided by Eadwig's death. Upon Edgar's death in 975, political uncertainty again began to spill into the nation, as two sons from different wives began to vie for power. During this uncertain time, of which we know bare scraps of tantalising information, Oslak seems to have made a mistake, likely backing the wrong political figure. He paid for it with his position, being driven out of power and replaced by the ever-present Thored, who had been eagerly waiting in the wings. Not only did Thored rise to prominence in the following years, becoming the Elderman of Jorvik, but for a time in the 980s, he would exercise so much power that the new King of England, Ethelred, married a daughter of the Northern Magnate. English kings didn't marry for love and Ethelred still had enemies from both within and without. This was an act of appeasement to keep the North on side, and it was one that would make Thored a grandfather of kings. Illustrious figures such as Athelstan Atheling and Edmund Ironside.
So who was Thored? Unfortunately, due to the sheer lack of written sources, it remains exceptionally difficult to get to the real figure. Even in the south of England at this time, the historical record is sparse, let alone in the north, where the sheer lack of surviving evidence has led a number of scholars to refer to the events of this time as the lost history of the north. Events were certainly playing out, power struggles and games of thrones that will remain forever unknown, unless some as yet long lost chronicle is discovered, of which some at least must have been written, yet lost to oblivion over the ages. Yet even so, by using what we do know from the tiny fragments that remain, we can arrive at a somewhat basic, yet no less fascinating picture of Thored's life. There are two possible origin stories for Thored, Elderman of Northumbria. The first one, usually not favoured by historians these days, is that he was the son of Oslak, that first Anglo-Scandinavian magnate to rule over Jorvik in the aftermath of Oswulf of Benicia's death in the mid-960s. According to the 13th century monk John of Wallingford, King Edgar made this decision during a council at York in order to prevent the whole area becoming the inheritance of one family, the House of Bamborough, although they, of course, retained control over their ancestral lands in Venetia to the north, from where they fought occasional border skirmishes with the Scots over control of Lothian. Surely, this same strategy of divide and rule would have been applied to Jorvik in order to prevent the rise of a single hereditary family who might make themselves kings there once more. Though Oslak apparently did have a son named Thored, it remains unlikely that the son of an exiled patriarch of a northern family would be put in power by the king in the wake of his being pushed out of the kingdom. It seems much more likely that a new man would have been put in charge to coincide with the regime change. Who better than the son of another powerful northern lord previously out in the cold? This leads us to the second possible candidate for Thored's identity. Thored, son of Gunnar, the figure recorded as having ravaged Westmoreland in 966. Thored's father, Gunnar, just like Oslak, is recorded as having witnessed numerous charters for King Edgar during the 960s which suggests both were probably influential leaders in Jorvik at the time, and friendly to the West Saxons. This was an age of intense political rivalries for the various magnates of Northumbria, be they Angles from Benicia, Anglo-Scandinavians from Jorvik, or Norse leftovers from the time of the Uyamer, 
all sought to further their own goals by pledging allegiance to the English. Decades-long blood feuds raged during this time between the leading families of northern power brokers. Often lasting for generation after generation, such as with the brutal conflict between the House of Bamborough and that of the Anglo-Scandinavian magnate Thurbrand the Hold, which saw a lengthy series of brutal murders on both sides by successive new generations until well after the Norman conquest of England in 1066. Upon Edgar's death in 975, however, everything changed, not just in the north, but throughout Britain. The ever-precarious Anglo-Saxon unity, forged from expansion, descended into factionalism as Edgar's two sons, Edward and Ethelred, each born from a different mother and a different political camp, attempted to outdo each other for the crown. One of the first victims of the ensuing political carnage seems to have been Oslak. No reason is given in the sources for his sudden fall from grace, but the sea version of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle laments his sorry situation. The valiant Oslak was driven from the country, over the tossing waves, the gannet's bath, the tumult of the waters, the homeland of the whale. A grey-haired man, wise and skilled in speech, he was bereft of his lands. Though almost no other details remain of what happened, Oslak certainly was overthrown and cast out of the kingdom, never to be heard of again. In his place, for the next four years, very little can be said about the situation in the north. In the interim, events in the south heated up almost to the point of civil war, culminating in the brutal murder of King Edward the Martyr in 978, with his half-brother and successor Ethelred, along with his formidable mother Elfthrith, according to some sources, implicated in the killing. By 979, though it remains difficult to establish what he had been doing during the intervening years, Thored once more bursts onto the political scene, arising as an ally in the north to the new political regime in Wessex, with the boy king Ethelred as its figurehead. For more than a decade to come, Thored would remain the most important lord in Jorvik. Based on his being a witness to royal charters, Thored's governorship as Elderman cannot be securely dated before 979, though a thane sharing his Anglo-Scandinavian name does first appear on West Saxon political record long before, during the reign of Edgar. Because of a lack of corroborating information, it of course remains impossible to establish precisely whether this was the same Thored 
though it does seem possible. Britain's late 10th century was an age of dynastic conflicts, of family squabbles and deadly blood feuds. The wild north remained a diverse and brutal melting pot of Norse, Dane, Briton and Saxon. Unlike East Anglia and the Five Boroughs, where West Saxon families such as that of Athelstan Halfking were now fairly well integrated into the establishment, making governorship relatively simple, in the North, at the best of times, the West Saxons were little more than equals to the leading Northern magnates, and in 978 the King had been brutally murdered, those allegedly responsible now holding the reins of power. In the wild and remote lands up there, removed from the south by weeks of travel through treacherous hills and impassable rivers, Ethelred's new regime simply couldn't afford to dictate terms if they wanted to stay in charge. Far from it, in the north, the strongest ruled, and the kings in the south had to work with them whether they liked it or not. By the late 970s, Thored either seems to have been the most powerful magnate of his day, a position he seems to have claimed by the sword, or he was at least the most powerful who was willing to work with the south. And as such, in time, he became an integral ally to the West Saxon kings. If it was indeed the same Thored that the West Saxon political records speak of during the reign of Edgar, then his earliest possible appearance comes in 964, two years before the attack on Westmoreland, when he bore witness to a grant of land by the king to St Peter's Abbey in Flanders. A further charter issued by Edgar in 966, which granted land in Oxfordshire to a woman named Elfgifu, has an illegible Elderman Witness signature, which may be Thored. Irregardless of the turmoil in the south, by the late 970s and early 980s, there are hints of a political crisis in the north. It remains entirely possible that Thored had not actually been a royal appointment in the first place, instead simply having claimed power due to his influence and military prowess before capitalising on the new political turmoil between the two rival Wessex camps to legitimise himself. Even according to the 12th century monk, Aelred of Rivo, forcing Ethelred to marry his daughter Elfgifu, thus making Thored father-in-law to one of the richest monarchs in Western Europe, and a grandfather to kings. However it began, Though very little evidence remains of it, Thored's relationship with the English monarchy under Ethelred seems to have been a positive one. The king's marriage to a northern woman likely easing his transition to the position of their new overlord. Thored seems to have remained in royal favour throughout the 980s, attesting charters in 979, 6 in 983, 1 in 984, 3 in 985, 1 in 988, and for the last time in 989. Yet, as usually happens in history, especially during the height of the Viking Age, all good things 
must come to an end. Though Viking raids had picked up again throughout the 980s, ravaging far-flung lands and sacking towns secure from raids since the time of Alfred, in 991 a fresh Viking fleet arrived from Scandinavia to plunge the fragile political balance of the north into turmoil for the next 30 years. The first of many Scandinavian princes had arrived in Britain. Olaf Tryggvason. Like Eric Bloodaxe before him, Olaf was a descendant of the Norwegian king Harald Fairhair, and thus heir to the throne of Norway. He ravaged his way across southern England for some weeks, before meeting a large English force at Maldon in Essex, decimating an English force there led by Alderman Brithnoth of Essex, and permanently damaging the prestige of the West Saxon elite in the process. From then on, until England was finally conquered outright by the Danish king Svein Forkbeard just over two decades later, the fragile integration of Englishman and Dane would suffer deep riven rifts throughout the nation as England very nearly tore itself apart at the seams. In 992, Ethelred planned a large-scale naval operation against his Viking enemies, perhaps seeking to relive the glory days of his father, when Anglo-Danish fleets had dominated the shores of Britain, forcing any potential Vikings away from English shores. Earl Thored, apparently still expertly navigating politics between the north and the south, was appointed one of the leaders of the expedition alongside the other foremost lords of the north. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle laments what happened next. The king and all his councillors decreed that all the ships that were of any use should be assembled at London, and the king then entrusted the expedition to the leadership of Elderman Elfric, Earl Thored, Bishop Alfstan, and Bishop Esquig and they were to try, if they could, to entrap the Danish army anywhere at sea. Then Elderman Elfric sent someone to warn the enemy, and then in the night before the day on which they were to have joined battle, he absconded by night from the army to his own disgrace, and then the enemy escaped, except that the crew of one ship was slain. And then the Danish army encountered the ships from East Anglia, and from London, and they made a great slaughter there, and captured the ship, all armed and equipped, on which the Elderman was. The expedition was a complete failure, apparently owing to treachery, not from Thored, but from the English lord, Elfric of Hampshire, who ranks alongside Ethelred's chief enforcer, Edric Striona, as one of the great villains of the age. In the following year, Northumbria was attacked. These Vikings apparently didn't discriminate between Anglo-Scandinavians and Englishmen, the lands of both on the shores of the Humber being laid to waste, and Bambra, of all places, put to the torch. 
On land, an English army was sent to apprehend the Vikings. Yet before making contact with the enemy, it apparently dispersed. One chronicler alleging that the English army failed because its three leaders were Danes on their father's side. Whether the accusation is true or not, it certainly sheds light not only on the underlying tensions between North and South, between English and Dane, but also on Southern apprehensions about the loyalty of the Anglo-Scandinavian aristocracy in the North. These were tensions that would eventually culminate in the St. Bryce's Day Massacre in 1002, when King Ethelred allegedly attempted to have all of the Danes living under his rule killed en masse. This, of course, was impossible to carry out in most areas, but it did certainly lead to the deaths of large numbers of incoming mercenaries, along with some of the older residents of Britain. In the aftermath of the disastrous series of campaigns against the Viking invaders in the early 990s, Thored, just like his predecessor Oslak, was removed from his office but this time to be replaced by a non-Northumbrian, Elfhelm, a prominent Mercian lord. This was the first time in Jorvik's history that a southerner had directly administered the north. Though his last historical appearance came in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle in 992, the date of Thored's death remains uncertain. Historians tending to suggest that he was either killed fighting the new wave of incoming Scandinavians, or else he survived, but soon afterwards became disgraced either by defeat, treachery, or by the newfound distrust and hatred of Scandinavians in England. In the years that followed the debacles of the early 990s, the situation all throughout England progressively went from bad to worse. Not only Danes, but Norsemen and Norscales from the Irish Sea closed in to take advantage of English weakness after Olaf Tryggvason's victories opened up the floodgates, but also the increasingly powerful Scottish kings from the north and Brythonic rulers of Strathclyde began to push southwards to encroach on lands held by Englishmen for centuries. England's darkest age was about to begin. Yet, even so, it was during that dark age of brutal battles and chaos as marauding Scandinavian princes and warlords laid waste to the country almost at will that at least one of Thored's descendants, a thane named Athelstan, his son, remained true to the legacy of his father by fighting not for the Scandinavian newcomers but alongside his English countrymen against the new wave of Viking invaders ultimately giving his life for the family's adopted country at the Battle of Ringmere in 1010, dying in a terrible last stand against a professional force of veteran Joms Vikings under the ruthless Danish warlord Thorkel the Tall. Upon the final Danish conquest of England in 1016, Canute, the son of the now-deceased king of both Denmark and Norway, Svein Forkbeard, became the new King of England, a base from which he would then use to reclaim his father's holdings in Denmark and Norway, ushering in an entirely new era of Anglo-Scandinavian culture on a much wider scale than ever before, and the formation 
of a North Sea empire. After Ethelred's new man, the High Reeve of Bamborough, Uhtred the Bold, was killed in 1016, Canute gave the North to Eric Hakonson, a Norwegian Jarl of Laid and a veteran ally of his father, whose support had been invaluable in securing the crown of England. Similarly, East Anglia went to another Viking warlord, who just a handful of years earlier had spent his time in ravaging the country, Thorkel the Tall. Within just a few decades, this new wave of Scandinavian invasion, culminating for the first time in history in an outright usurpation of the English crown, was for the most part absorbed into England. Once again, the Vikings were going native. As far as the Anglo-Scandinavian power brokers of Jorvik were concerned, it was business as usual. This is a brand new podcast, so if you like what you heard, the best way to help the show out is to leave a review on iTunes. This is the best way for new podcasts to grow and for people to find the show. You can also find tons more historical material over on the History Time social media links. We're on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. If you really like what you heard and want to help me to keep making new podcasts, videos and articles, then the best way to help is to become a patron at www.patreon.com forward slash historytime uk. For as little as a dollar a month, you'll help me to keep making material, get sneak previews of what I'm working on, and gain the opportunity to vote on upcoming videos and podcasts. I'm Pete Kelly, and you've been listening to History Time. See you on the next one.